Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Listening, hear me. I may not pass this way again. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, a podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode features a conversation with Tom Besford, Chief Executive of the English Folk Expo. It would be fantastic if you could rate, review and subscribe to the podcast, as doing that helps more people to discover it. It's also wonderful when people share the podcast far and wide. You can find out more information about me and the projects I'm working on at robertlaymusic.co.uk, where you can also sign up to my mailing list to receive news and my thoughts about creativity and the stuff I'm up to. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Tom Besford. Hi, Tom. How are you? Hi, Robert. Yeah, fine. Thank you. And yourself? Yeah, all good. Thank you very much. Um, what have you been working on recently? What am I dragging you away from to have this conversation? Well, uh, we're in the run-up to planning uh, the festival, Manchester Folk Festival, this October. So we're on brochure deadline this week. So I've been combing through proofings and images and copy and final bits of timings and stuff like that at the moment. And and once it's gone to print, I always try never to look at it again in case we spot mistakes. Because it's too late then. I love that. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's it. Great. So how big is Manchester Folk Festival? How many acts, venues and stuff? Well, um, it has this year, we've got about 60 bands uh, playing in uh, nine venues in the northern quarter of Manchester. Um, uh, and there's a whole range of tickets and stuff available. But usually we hope to bring about 3,000 people uh, to gigs there or thereabouts over the course of three days. Uh, but it's also, it runs alongside our industry showcase event, English Folk Expo, where we invite around 200 music industry representatives to watch as many of those bands as they can. Mm. And then hopefully they go away and they book those bands and uh, uh, the ecosystem gets stronger. Great. And how affected has that festival been post-COVID and how is it sort of looking for this year? Is it a normal year or are things still feeling a bit strange? Well, things haven't really settled down it's a, it's a tricky one to answer that because this year we're relocating our venues from um, one bit of the city to the northern quarter. Mm. And so that's a bit up in the air and changing quite a bit of the format. Um, so it's been tough, but because the concerts are effectively mostly individual ticketed, then we're starting to see things get a little bit better. But last year it was really tough. 2021 we managed to run it in in 21 in between breaks of the lockdown and that was that was hard um so we things are improving a little bit but i don't i don't think we're going to get to where uh back to the dizzy heights of 2019 2018 for the festival but you never know people are buying later they're taking their chances um on 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 things I'm finding they're less likely to take risks on new things. So the so for artists they know, tickets no problem. But for people just taking a punt, oh I don't know that band, maybe I'll go and see them. I'll you know I'll pay I'll pay a fifteen pound ticket and take a risk. That's that's less likely at the moment. But I hope that will come back in that sense of adventure. But I think that's as much link to the cost of living crisis as it is. Uh, a post-pandemic issue. Yes, it's something that anecdotally I'm hearing a lot of people say, venues and artists, and then in my own experience with booking various stuff as well. Um, 
yeah, people are leaving it late. I, I wonder if sometimes it's a little bit of still the idea of, well, if I get ill, I'll, you know, I'm going to have to stay home and all that sort of stuff. So there's a bit of that. But then, as you say, cost of living is obviously putting a lot of pressure on things. Um, but it's interesting that you said the heady heights of 2018, 2019. So before the event, the global event, was it kind of like, did you did you feel that we were in a golden era or is it just sort of comparatively to how things have been for the last couple of years? Had it reached a bit of a zenith, do you think? I think just comparative, but Manchester Folk Festival has only been going since 2017. So I don't feel like I've ever had, although we've ever had, a normal a normal year. Yeah. Maybe 2019 was possibly the closest we ever got to a normal year. Um, and we're a venues-based festival as well. So every year there's a bit that's different. The sites change, the timings change. We try not to repeat artists as well. So the lineups are very different. We have different approaches to international bands. So this year we've got 11 international bands in the public programme um, and uh, 14 overall for the delegate program, and and that's a different, a totally different approach. So, I guess there's no normal for this uh, uh, for, for for us anyway, and and uh, we just sort of see what we where we get to. It's very lineup led, and it's very dependent on venues and and whether the 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 audiences of the northwest are, are happy to come out for it. Really, sure. Okay, Tom, I think it'd be helpful for people listening in then if you could just give me a bit of a just explain for us what English Folk Expo is really and then how long it's been around and also your part in it and maybe a bit of your backstory as well, if you could. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I run English Folk Expo. We're a charity that's funded by Arts Council England. We're a national portfolio organisation, which means we get core grant funding from them. And the reason that we exist is to champion folk roots and acoustic music in England. And we're all about professional industry development as opposed to creative sides of it. So our job is to help facilitate uh, more spend in that bit of the music economy and the specialist bit of the the music sector. So the main way we do that is we have an annual showcase and a showcase is just a marketplace for music. It's where we invite about 200 music industry representatives, festival bookers, booking agents, labels, venues, promoters, just anyone who can work with artists. We invite them to Manchester each year and then we put a lot of bands in front of them. We give them lots of opportunities to network. We ply them with a bit of wine and then we hassle them to do business and to work with bands. And that generates about £2 million of bookings for the folk sector each year. Uh, both in the UK and internationally. And there are many artists who have been on international tours as a result of that. So that's our main thing. And we run the Manchester Folk Festival alongside it as the vehicle to present the artists. But we also do lots of other things as well. We do a lot of talent development programmes, artist development programmes around helping artists take that step from, okay, I'm now creating music, Mm -hmm. And where do I start? What do I do next? How do I commercialize my offer? And we might help as well with artists at a mid-scale level taking steps into, say, international territories. How do I approach reaching a Canadian market? What does it look like to tour Australia and how do I pull those things together? And then we also do quite a bit of industry development as work as well. So in the past year, we've run a couple of promoter training programs to teach young people 
um, to teach people with protected characteristics how to promote their own concerts in a way that is hopefully financially viable mm. and what that looks like. We do a lot of online stuff. We've got a large online platform with hundreds of hours of free content about how to build your career in the music industry. We do loads of networking, international partnership. Just this past weekend, I've been in Flanders at Festival Dranuta, uh, where I was part of a UK delegation who were doing a show, a two-way showcase. So 10 UK bands played at that festival and three Flemish bands will play at our festival. Uh, and we'll do a bit of a swap. And that's uh, incredibly funded by the, the Flanders Brexit Recovery Fund, which feels to me deeply upsetting that we're effectively receiving international aid because of our misguided decisions to leave the European Union. But there you go, that's a, a bit political there. Um, and then in terms of my own background, I have worked in largely the live music sector for the past decade or so, working in venues and festivals, things like that, um, but run, working on English Folk Expo on the side since it was formed in 2012. And then in 2018, when we got our core funding, I went to do this full-time. And since then, we've grown a lot of the team and, and the programmes that we run as well. Great. Thank you very much. Because it's just interesting, sort of, you're aware of organisations, as I certainly am, and you might not necessarily know <laughs> how they started or, interestingly, what the actual ambition behind them was. So it's really nice to have that outlined a little bit, actually. And I guess a sort of obvious question from that then. So from 2012, when the group formed, 2018, the core funding, how have things changed in the industry? Big question. But uh, how have things changed and what kind of state are we in? Should we be feeling positive? Yes, yes, we should be feeling positive. But the music industry has changed drastically in these 10 years, massively changed music industry. And we have to react to those changes. And specialist genres like folk are not, are not immune from those changes. And to some extent, the more traditional folk world is a little bit bubbled because there are things like consistent folk clubs and regular folk festivals and people identify with the genre and so sort of take a punt because they're a fan of the genre. And that doesn't always happen in the mainstream. But I would say that the major changes that we've come across is uh, in the quality of music that's out there and the volume of it compared to the size of the audience. And that means that maybe 10 Certainly 15 years ago, it, you could be an incredibly talented musician and with a bit of luck, that would be enough to enable you to build a career. Mm. And unfortunately, it's or rather fortunately, it's easier than ever for someone now, especially post-pandemic, to buy some decent equipment for their home, record a pretty decent sound, a um, couple of singles, put it on Spotify or distribute it yourself on a fairly simple way. And before you know it, you've got loads of excellent quality musicians that have been able to self-release music themselves, that have built their own website themselves, that look very professional. And yet the audience is the same or maybe slightly smaller for specialist genres. So that's a challenge for those artists because, um, and, and knowing where to start to, to, to get yourself noticed or to build that brand profile, that just doesn't, there isn't that support there. In fact, the UK is one of the largest music economies without any, what's known as a music export office, without any formal 
organization whose job it is to cultivate that talent development to open up those international markets and so mm. we found we had to step into that that said it's easier to get your music out there than ever before it's easier to target and find those fans it's easier to monetize your music even if the return from that music is, is far less than it should be uh, it's easier to get started and, and balance a, a career a portfolio career um, with your music and that's all those things are fantastic opportunities for artists. And as a result, so many more are. There was a stat um, from Spotify last year that there are 11 million uh, artists uploading content to Spotify. And of those 11 million, 50,000 took more than $10,000 out of Spotify in a year. Now, we all know how difficult it is to get money out of Spotify. But that's really 50,000 artists out of 11 million that are making anywhere near enough money on Spotify to contribute to their career in a meaningful sense. Maybe you balance it with live, you might just about scrape through, mm. which shows the competitiveness and the, the challenge that's out there. And I don't want to put anyone off, but a lot of our work is around, wow, okay, how do I, how do I even process that? Where do I begin? How do I find my fan base how do i make sure that i'm getting paid for all the stuff that i deserve to be paid for and that and that's a hard that's a hard process for anyone mm. fascinating that's really interesting um and there's a good point that perhaps i haven't really thought that much about before more artists with the same audience size as as ever really um and then another thing that's the traditional thing with folk i guess as well <laughs> wrong use of the word traditional but in this sort of circuit a lot of the artists tend to be bright young things and a lot of the audiences tend to be slightly older than the performers who are, who are playing on that circuit and I think there's a few things that speak to that um, people of kind of my age my generation don't have a lot of spare income for gigs they might have kids and jobs to worry about so that night out every so often is quite a big deal and I think that's where you sort of say the taking the risk you might spend a bit to go and see something you're really interested in, you're a bit more sceptical with what, what you've got. So that sort of 20s, 30s, 40s age range maybe are a bit under pressure, whereas traditionally the folk, certainly the folk club audience, is it fair to say, are a little bit older? Um, is that still true yeah, or I think, I, is that a bit of a generalisation? I think that's fair to say, but equally Simon Kerr, who is an amazing a musician and human being, said to me a couple of years ago, he said, I've been playing professionally as a folk musician for 30 plus years hmm. and when i was in my early 20s the audiences were 50 plus and now that i'm in my uh, 50s or however old he is the audiences are 50 plus and i wonder whether uh, whether that's just the nature of uh, music of, of some kind of folk music maybe classical music maybe the audience is always kind of there but it's actually you're right the people who have got the disposable income and the time to be able to sit down in a concert because they're largely seated concerts mm. um, are those are that are that age demographic, the age bracket. Also, the the cost of live music is is really hard, and I think a lot of the other work that we do is around just talking to people about the music industry. That if you're you know if you're paying twelve pounds for a ticket, we'll just do the maths in your head. What's the artist going to walk away with after you've paid? The venue hire and the sound engineer and the marketing and even work even on top of that is there anything left at the end for the promoter you know who's doing that who's paying for this kind of stuff we're very lucky in the folk world especially that 
there's a lot of people volunteering their time and cash to keep it going. You know, most festivals of this kind of size are largely volunteer-led. Um, and without that, we've, we've been a real a real challenge. Um, so, I mean, I'm coming across like it's all a bit of a downer here. It's not. Like, there are real positives we can take. It's much more accessible. Those all those slightly older audiences often have a little bit more disposable income. There's still a CD-buying audience in the mm-hmm. folk world, and it's definitely not a CD-buying audience in all other genres. Mm-hmm. So there's opportunities of direct-to-fan sales that are not available to all artists. Um, there are much more long-term career trajectories that are possible in the folk world because it does not matter if you know you would see people you still see people on the scene here who've got 20 30 40 year music careers and in other genres that possibly isn't isn't the case so there are lots of changes here and i think the reason why a lot of the musicians who are bright young things as you say actually it comes down to that limitation on the size of the audience that if you are the the featured artist the person who if you want that to be your full-time music career you know the one where you're buying tickets to go and see x person that's a really hard thing to do if you don't augment it with session work, teaching, other jobs. Uh, and by the time you get to your late twenties, early thirties, it's a pretty. You probably have to reach a moment where you think, okay, I've got to make some decisions now about what I'm doing here, and and that's a that's a tough moment as well. So, um, also again, loads of young people coming through the various brilliant degree programs out there, learning fantastic. Um, like workshops and summer camps and things like that. There's loads of amazingly talented musicians coming onto the scene, and uh, you know, part of the thinking is, okay, well, who wants to make this their career, and who wants to just continue enjoying playing music as a hobby, and how you differentiate those things. Mm. And you have those conversations with artists, I guess, quite a bit. Then, when sort of, um, and what's the What's the balance? Because I guess it isn't talent or ability that will change your perspective of whether someone's doing it for the long haul and a career or whatever. It's it's something else, is it, I would imagine? Well, we always say, or rather I say, that you kind of need four things to be a professional musician. So the first is you've got to be incredibly talented. Like That's just a, it's got to be a given. You've got to be spectacular. You probably aren't going to be able to if, you, if you're not an incredibly talented human being an incredibly talented musician you're not going to have a long-term or sustainable career the second thing is that you need to have really resilient mental health support structures around you because mm-hmm. you are selling your creativity i mean you're commoditizing your yeah your very essence your soul that's a hard thing to do and if you don't get that return or it does something doesn't sell as well as you hope it to be that can feel a deeply personal moment for an artist, especially a solo artist. So talking openly about good mental health and well-being is essential and having resilient structures around you, friends and family that you can turn to, that's essential. The third thing is that you have to know the industry. You're the chief executive of your of your startup business. You're a small to medium-sized enterprise and no one is going to care more about your music than you are. And that means you have to make it your business to know the business. And if you're doing a 40 to 60 hour week, like any startup business would have, you might be on stage for what, five hours of that. You might be rehearsing for five, 10 hours. You've still got quite a lot of hours there in the day to treat this like a full-time job. That's really hard. 
And when you're doing an SME, when you're starting up a small business, you might also have another full-time job on the side until you can get to the point where your small business can take off. So that means that you're, if you were in any other industry and you were starting your own business up, you probably would find yourself burning the candle at both ends and sometimes in the middle as well, which is why you need all the other things. And then the fourth thing you need is luck. Sometimes you can get all of those things right and just not be in the right place at the right time to get the right opportunity. And there's nothing you can do about that apart from recognize where opportunities come from and putting yourself in a position where those opportunities are more likely to happen. And by that, I mean knowing the industry and thinking, okay, well, I've got all these other things. I'm going to make sure that I'm around where I'm going to build those networks. The music industry, rightly or wrongly, is a place for personal connectivity. It's a place where your professional relationships open doors, whether that is with musicians or other decision makers. So you can't hide away if you want to build those, if you want to get lucky, uh, which is feels a bit counterintuitive. But, you know, putting yourself where opportunity can happen mm. contributes to the chances that you find get lucky at that point. Mm. But it's a hard, it's really hard. I don't envy anyone trying to make it as a professional musician. It's so much harder than it used to be. But if you treat it like a business, you get to know, you build a, a business plan, you've got a forward plan, you've got cash flows, you've got your budgets, you've got a strategy, you're not just sort of scattergunning and hoping for the best, then, you know, it is possible to make, to 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 lift yourself into a position where this can be a, a career, mm. but it, it's the same as every other startup in a very crowded market. Mm. Interesting. Thank you. That leads me to ask then, from your point of view, what is the definition of a professional musician? Or um, you use the phrase make it. To to be successful as a musician in the sort of industry that we're talking about, what does that actually look like? What does it mean? I think it looks different to every person because everyone's got different circumstances, you know, different chances, different needs, uh, different lifestyles. I think it's hard. I'm, I'm... the irony of running an organization called English Folk Expo is that I really don't like uh, labels that end up pigeonholing people into certain things. I so was, the F word is the problem. I was going to uh, ask, I sorry, I was going to ask about the folk element of the name, actually. But yeah, carry, carry on. Yeah. So the, and the same thing with being calling yourself a musician. I mean, yeah. you know, what that means is different to everybody. Um, most people, especially if you're in specialist genres or you're wanting to be the featured artist or the one doing your music at the front yeah. most most people i know also have other irons in the fire and i think one of the most one of the best ways to support the wider industry is to build a portfolio career where you might be a musician but maybe you've released your album and you say to a few of your friends who you really like why don't i record and release your albums too and just expand the label element or maybe you'll get into publishing, or maybe you'll work out how music supervision works, or maybe a booking agent or a manager or a promoter, or you run your own festival. But I think that that for a lot of musicians, yes, there are the obvious session work, teaching, always really good. But if you want to work in the music industry, then I think building those freelance portfolio careers is a, is a good way to go. Um, because it, by the time you get to the point where you are the featured artist, if that's your sole job, mm. then, you know, if you've got that strategy right, you probably aren't touring all year round 
or you know you've got so there, there might be gaps in your program where you can fit other things in but again it's different for everyone some people genuinely just make a, a, a good living by going around all the vocal clubs all year round doing that and some people might do two specific tour periods a year with a, a, a sticky up moment every 18 months with an album and that's different for everybody um so yeah i was going to ask about the folk element of the name because then in the description i know that you were talking about acoustic and roots music so mm. is the bracket folk i suppose it's useful and not useful to, to, i mean as an artist you know from my point of view i found it useful sometimes and not useful other times um to sort of be in the folk world playing folk clubs it's really interesting so i've found the folk circuit very very supportive I'm full of people who like music, which is helpful. <laughs> but there has been the odd occasion where a club's like, you're not traditional folk enough, or a radio show's like, you're not traditional. And in a way, I respect that, because at least they know what their audience are after, or, or whatever it is. When an artist is a little bit more um, open at the edges, I guess, and have a few different influences, from my point of view, I've sometimes found it a little bit trickier to market. So so from your your situation and your point of view, what do you think? Is the folk bracket useful or does it get in the way? A bit of both, I suppose. It's really hard. I would I would do away with it, but yet at the same time we commissioned the official folk albums charts from the from the official charts company. Yeah. And you know the the decision has to be made there about what's what's folk and what's not. I hate being the folk police and I don't think we should, and I think we should call out the folk police wherever we see them. And if someone says that's not traditional enough or that's not folk, then I haven't any time for that. Okay. Um, I think if you identify with the genre and you feel like you belong there, then great. I've just come back two weeks ago. It was Cambridge Folk Festival, a brilliant festival, lovely people who run it, um, you know, great audiences. And I saw fantastic bands that we would all easily think of as folk, like, uh, Granny's Attic, or uh, like like the chair, but I also saw um, I also saw Arrested Development. I also saw Lady Blackbird. You know, Nightworks is basically EDM with bagpipes. So you know, I, I'm really open about what anyone wants to call folk, and I don't think anyone should sweat too much or waste too much time uh, getting any knickers in a twist about whether uh, whether someone's folk or not. Like. If, if you're good music is good music and you know if i want to go and see proper proper trad finger in your ear trad which i personally love and i do want to go and see that then i'll find those places that book that and i'll find those artists that book that but if i go to a folk festival and there's something where i go mm, is that on the edge of being folk or not folk well if i enjoy the music i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sweat too much i'm certainly not gonna write an angry comment online when we first did um when we first had the folk charts the very first number one artist in the folk charts is Jem- was Jemmy Webster. Mm. Now, Jemmy Webster released an album, which was the one that got to number one, of him playing acoustic guitar, songs he'd written about growing up in Liverpool in, and the challenges he faced, him and his community faced, making ends meet because of the implications of the government and his love for his football team mm. and how that was, you know, and, 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 and that was, for me, if ever there was to define a folk music, a political folk music album, that album from Jamie Webster was absolutely smack bang in the middle of it. But because he wasn't playing a lot of folk festivals, he was on a slightly different scene, a scene with artists like um, like Jerry Cinnamon in and people like that. Uh, then uh, there was some, I heard there was bits of comments like, is that folk? Is that folk? But 
well, yeah, he's calling it folk and he was delighted to be part of it. He was delighted to be the first ever number one, you know, and, and he would say, you know, he's put out a load of other albums since. Some I would say, oh, yeah, that's that's folk. And some I would say, maybe that's more rock. But mm. it, these are grey areas. I don't think anyone should lose any sleep over them. No. And it's, these things develop all the time and they evolve. And that's part of the what you would call traditional folk now. Somebody hundreds of years ago might have not recognised anyway. So it's the whole point, isn't it? It's going to develop. Was there yeah. some discussion at some point then, when say when the charts thing came up about what do we call this chart? Is it a folk chart? Do we call it a roots chart, acoustic chart, something else? Well, we did want to make a folk chart. Um, we came up with the idea because um, when we caught wind that the BBC Folk Awards weren't going to happen again, we needed a we needed. I thought we need something where there's a reason to talk about this genre of music mm. and. Folk Awards are a great thing because people can stick it on their posters. I've been nominated yeah. for this. I've won this Folk Award. And without that, the best I could think of was, and the team could think of, um, was, well, imagine if you got, if you can put top 10, my, my album was in the top 10 folk charts. So maybe that could be a selling thing on a poster. It could be a way to introduce people to the music. And I've been really, really grateful to Matthew Bannister and Folk on Foot, and he's currently doing his, his, his big walk across the country at the moment for uh, to raise money for Help Musicians UK. Really grateful that he runs the the Folk Album Show as, as a podcast and as a YouTube, uh, YouTube broadcast each month for that because it's great because it highlights new artists, it highlights new albums, um, and it's a really, truly independent uh, chart. Over 90% of the artists that feature in that chart are self-releasing or independent labels. So it's a great way to say, hey, look at this album coming out that you might have missed. Um, and, and it's done, you know, really positive things for, for many artists uh, who have got a lot of exposure from it and, and have been able to use that to, to to lift their career a little bit, which is ultimately the reason for doing the chart. Great. Out of interest then, what are the numbers on a chart like that? So how many does somebody, how much product does somebody shift to get in that chart? Uh, I know, but I'm not allowed to say. All right, I thought you might say. <laughs> but it's it's lower than you'd imagine. It's lower than I'd imagine, okay. To get make it into the top 40, anyone with a very enthusiastic family and friends who can play a couple of gigs should be able to make it into that chart, provided you sell through the correct channels, which is the challenge. So it's yep. not as open, it's not as fair as... As, as you know, it's not like you just write them and say, I sold 20 CDs at the gig last night. It doesn't work like that. It's a bit right. more specific than that because they have to check it for all kinds of legal reasons and to make sure they're official sales. But it's not perfect, but everyone's in the same boat. But if, for example, you shift a load of, ticket, load of CDs on Bandcamp, you know, then you've got a good chance of getting in there. Good. Okay. Which is positive for everybody. Well, positive for everybody, but then also maybe a little bit sad on the other side. But that's just a reflection of, of record sales and all the rest of it, isn't it? I suppose. And it leads me on to a question I, I ask people a lot because it's something I think about a lot as a creative. I have this terrible thing about legitimacy, right? So I've, you can make stuff and sell stuff and play shows and have a circuit and all the rest. And the wider world doesn't need to know about it necessarily, which is quite cool. There's something in, fun about that. But then, say, with my musical pursuits, not getting played on certain radio shows and with my acting pursuits, not getting certain gigs, you know, it's sort of, 
How important are those legitimate things? So you've mentioned you can put it on your poster if you've got a folk award or if so-and-so DJ has played you or whatever. Are they important outside of that? No. I think, again, this comes back to our four pillars about mental resilience and the challenge there because I think those issues eat away at artists more than when most of their audience base hasn't even hasn't even noticed it doesn't care about it. yeah yeah maybe the, like yeah i guess that's it and uh, not to be too direct about it but but it's it, those things are tough and well i'll give you one example i'll give you one example so um we have an open call for every one of our projects and programs commissions performance slots like everything we do an open call for which i think is the only fair way to to do it and most festivals don't do an open call no but what that means is say we do an open call for an artist mentoring program where we've got five or four slots and we have 300 people applying if you're in the top 20 say you're 20 to five you're not getting picked but you're still an incredible musician. To get to that level, to be able to submit, to be shortlisted in that way, you're still absolutely fantastic. And so I think, oh, not this time, but there will come a time when I work with that person. And then you do the next open call, and maybe that person gets into like the top 10, but not quite enough. And there are fantastic musicians that we've never worked with, that I would love to work with, that we just haven't had the right opportunity but it feels even more direct when you do an open call because we might have three open calls a year and someone might submit all three of them open calls every year and not be picked for three years. You feel like you're endlessly just filling out these open calls. It's administration that that artists often haven't got capacity or time for. It's energy and yeah. it's hope. And, and then getting a rejection, that can sometimes feel worse than a festival. You might send an email out to festival organizer every year and just never hear back from them and never get a book in anyway and i always on i always weigh this up like you know you might make these petitions to be on a, a show or to be on a festival lineup or to be promoted and it can eat away at you why have they not picked me is it me have i done this have i not done this right have, have, is there something wrong with my music and again this goes back to the challenge of the the competitiveness of the market there are loads of incredible musicians that we've never been able to work with who um, uh, are not for want of it, just for capacity, just for space in the programme. You know, when we have our showcase last year, um, we had our, we did our showcase and we did the open call selection and it, it shifted around. But for whatever reason, we ended up with, about a quarter of the band showcasing ended up being solo guitar singers. Mm -hmm. And so the industry, in the feedback for the industry, we had a few people write, well, I'm not, not into that, I'm looking for tune players, I'm looking for bands, I don't want a solo guitarist. And so the feedback from that was quite tricky. And so even though these were, I mean, this could be even headliners to support acts, it was just how it, how it worked out. And... We then had to work really hard to make sure those industry representatives agreed to come again to to try and say, well, well okay, we'll, we'll balance that program out. Now, that's hard when two thirds of our applicants are from solo singer guitarists. Yeah, you know, so that that already puts you in an even greater challenge to get over the line because they're all excellent musicians. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, with so much of this stuff, isn't it? We don't actually know what the what's happening outside of our own stuff that's going to affect a decision with that sort of stuff, I suppose. It's kind of interesting. Um, I can yeah. only relate it to the acting and the audition thing as well, where an actor can be fantastic, but they don't. They might not be the right height for the costume, you know, literally as daft as it gets for that yeah. kind of stuff, or they don't have the right colour eyes to match the other people who've been cast as the fact. You know, these crazy things that are so out of your control. Um, I mean, that sounds even more intense in acting, you know. Uh, but, it, but I would say that it's worthwhile. It is hard and sometimes can feel really like like battering to keep applying for stuff yeah. and keep getting auditions. But I would say that if you're not in it, you're not going to get selected. Yeah. If you don't make the application. And I I would say this because I run a showcase, but be at showcases, just go there. Even if you're not playing, get there, build those networks because certainly, and it shouldn't be like this. We have a selection panel, but if you know the names on that list, oh, I met that person. You, they kind of, I don't know, maybe they shouldn't, but they do, they might sit there. And if you're balancing at the end two fantastic artists, yeah. you've got one slot, you think, well, I might give it to one I know or I've met because I know what they're like. I know that they'll go down well with the delegates. I've seen them play live and they've done that. They've obviously done their homework. They're not just going to turn up to the showcase, play the gig and go away and have not done any of the preliminary advanced stuff or follow it up or, you know, these people understand how the industry is going to work. So, you know those those kind of things do form those hair those really fine decisions when you're narrowing it down and that's it's it's tough but it is a, as I said at the start it's a people industry and so building your personal connections is absolutely essential. And is there something also that like when I first started to get into playing shows and stuff, you'd see the same names of artists. So every club you applied to, so-and-so, 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 so-and-so. So suddenly I had this um, this opinion of what that artist might be like, and they're quite far up in their career. And then, of course, as the years have gone on, I've met them all, <laughs> or most of them. And they're gigging musicians like the rest of us. They're just freelance people. Yeah. But there's something about, even without seeing someone play, the fact that you see that. So it must be the same from a booker's point of view as well. If you see that someone's out playing shows and then you're kind of vaguely aware of their album or whatever, even if you've not actually listened to the music that much, they're just a presence that you're aware of, I guess. Yeah, someone said to me at the weekend that if, if three different industry people say the same name to you in quick succession in different places, you go, oh, maybe I should just check that person out. Yeah. But that means you've got to have different people in the industry seeing you. Yeah and talking about you and getting to know you. And that includes artists as well. Yeah. So you can still, you should, it's not, you don't just need to go and find people that work in different bits of the music industry. Just build your artist network because people go up and down and the things come around and they end up taking on bits of jobs here and there and they end up chatting to other people. Cultivate your professional network. It's absolutely essential. Um, uh, yeah. All right, cool. Thank you. Um, sort of final thoughts then. Playing live, so up until, again, the pandemic, at some point on this podcast I'll be able to stop talking about it, but it's got such a big shadow across everything mm. like that still. Um, it sort of seemed like at one point playing live, particularly with, as you mentioned, the pressures on Spotify and music and all the rest of it, that people could have a career just from doing live shows. Hard work, but the the sort of circuit was out there. Is it still the case? Was it ever the case, given the other pressures that we've mentioned about cost of living and getting people out to gigs and stuff? Or or do people need to be doing that portfolio career that you were talking about? I think it's different for everyone. 
I know some people that make an absolutely fine uh, living out of just doing live and don't put any of their music on the distribution platforms okay. and, and and insist on doing it on themselves. You know, they don't have a team. They do all that work themselves and it works out brilliantly for them. Mm. I know other people who would far rather give a slice of the cake to as many other people as they possibly can in the hope that it becomes a much bigger cake. Right. Um, and I don't think there's... Um, so I was involved in a um, a bit of research uh, last year called the European Music Business Task Force, and we published a paper about how you grow a European-wide music business. And that could be an artist, but it could be management or label. And one of the things that we recognize is you don't just go in at the, the ground floor of music industry towers and then uh, get promoted until you become the chief exec of music industry. Um, you, everyone has a different career. Everyone's um, opportunities are different. It, it comes at different times for everyone. Uh, there's no set path, but there are some common themes, mm. and those common themes usually, you know, we've touched on some of them, um, they involve building your professional network. They involve, at some point, someone at some point, most people we spoke to had a had a leg up from someone who was maybe a, me- a mentor to them. At some point, most people we spoke to got a little bit of financial subsistence or assistance somewhere, whether that was maybe some funding for an album, uh, some funding to go to an international event, uh, just something, you know, a particularly large or generous festival fee that put them into a, a larger category. Um, at some point, uh those who built a sustainable long-term career had attended an international event and had built their network outside of their immediate market. At some point, everyone there had just had an idea with someone socially in a bar (laughs) who's part of a music industry event usually, or just a chat with them over a brew and had an idea and been open to a new idea or a new concept or, you know, a new commission, making a new band, setting up a new venture, but been open to the idea that new things might come out of it anywhere. So putting yourself in a position where those those things happen. Uh, nobody we spoke to with a European career had made it by staying entirely in their own very small bubble and, and operated used just using the internet for uh, without 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 stretching out and building that 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 network. And on the other side of that, then, how important are things like social media, which, again, from my point of view, maybe a couple of years ago seemed so vital to be building stuff on there. Now it's kind of like I could envisage not being bothered about that stuff a little bit. I don't know. Still on the fence with it, I think. I think you have to – well, my my advice, and it's take it or leave it, some people would disagree with it, is that you should have – platforms everywhere so that it's easy it's as easy as possible for people to find you and your music yes but also to recognize that you are selling a brand and that brand is both your music but also you and your the night out experience you're going to have when you're watching those things so considering how your music and how your online persona interact is key and that means you need to go where your audiences are folk most audiences are on facebook uh uh, whereas for a lot of other genres, they're on Instagram, and that will change and shift over time. But also recognizing that your social media, when you make a post, it's probably only going to reach a very small percentage of your followers. Yeah. And actually, you're far better to have a mailing list where you might get 30% of your fans opening 
that you need the whole thing and that's even more admin work i mean most musicians nowadays would complain that they're not really doing music full-time they're doing social media video editing copywriting yeah uh, um intellectual property administration yeah. <laughs> uh and, and emailing and that's what they're doing that is probably the role of a musician today uh you know it wasn't the case 20 odd years ago but now that that probably is what what you should be doing mm. All right, Tom, that's been really fascinating and very helpful. Thank you very much. If people wanted to catch up with the work that the um, English Folk Expo would do in, what's the best way of finding them and you? Englishfolkexpo.com and you can sign up to a mailing list and we even categorise it if you want to hear about stuff that we think artists would be interested in or stuff that we think music industry representatives would be interested in. There's even a bit where fans might be interested and we, we contact people through Manchester Folk or Manchester Folk Festival around that. But uh, always delighted to hear from anyone we're literally here to have a chat and to, to help grow this bit of the music industry tom thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me that's been great thanks robert thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed that join us next time on the robert lane creative careers podcast until then please subscribe rate and review and have a look at robertlanemusic.co.uk to see the other projects i'm working thank you goodbye